0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We're also going to be getting an update on what has been going on in Nova Scotia. Now, they're still grieving there, of course, after that horrific mass shooting last month that left 22 people killed. There's a lot of investigation that is still going on here. A lot of questions that still exist as well about how... The shooter here got that RCMP, you know, car that looks so much like exactly like an RCMP vehicle. How they got the uniform, how all of that happened, and what did police know about him and his activities prior to this shooting happening? Well, we're getting more information on that. Joining us now to talk about that is Global News Halifax journalist Elizabeth McSheffrey. Good morning, Elizabeth.
2: Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you very much. I know there's a lot of discussion right now about uh, one of the former neighbours of the shooter here, Brenda Forbes. What do we know about what she's been telling us?
2: Well, Brenda Forbes has been very public with her story. Uh, she did live just a stone's throw away from the shooter, Gabriel Wartman, uh, many years ago. And, of course, fled out of concern for her own safety uh, but she reached us uh, since since all of that happened. And she's telling us more uh, about the shooter's history of domestic violence, but also who knew about it. Uh, so she was a good friend of the shooter's partner at the time that partner confided in her. But she was also a friend of the shooter's uncle, Glenn Wartman, uh, and she says, Glenn Wartman was there the day that the shooter is said to have strangled his partner and beat, beaten her quite severely. And now we've actually reached the uncle as well, and he's confirmed to us that he was there that day and he has seen his nephew's abuse on multiple occasions. Okay,
1: then why didn't anyone go to the police?
2: Well, Brenda did in 2013, seven years ago, uh, and at the time, she had asked the uncle to, to go to RCMP with what he what he had seen because they needed an actual witness. But the uncle at the time said he feared for his life. His nephew would have killed him. Uh, but his nephew, the shooter, Gabriel Wartman, had also told him, allegedly, that he shot or he killed someone in the United States before and that's a very serious allegation of course so RCMP are, are investigating every possible avenue there but what's interesting is that the RCMP have no record of Brenda's complaint to them seven years ago um, and the Mounties are, are, you know, they've confirmed that to us. But we've reached one RCMP officer who's shedding a little more light on how that could have happened, what might have happened to her complaint. And we're not naming him because he's not authorized to speak about the case. Mm-hmm. But he says either Brenda was wrong, the complaint wasn't logged at the time, or it was logged and officers found no criminality there. So it was wiped from the system after a couple of years.
1: And in other words, it sounds like there's still a lot of questions about domestic violence and how police responded to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time on that this morning.
2: Thank you very much.
1: That is Global News Halifax journalist Elizabeth McSheffrey talking about the update from Porta Peak, Nova Scotia, where the investigation continues into the motivations and what police knew and when they knew it about the shooter in that case. Yeah, there are lots of questions about the domestic violence aspect of this. Did they know? Did they have reports on this? Did they not investigate Uh, You know, were there guns in the home? Was any of that looked after? So still many more uh, updates to come on that case for sure, because people have not gotten very many satisfying answers on that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know, we are seeing a pretty downward trend of COVID-19 cases here in BC. The numbers have fluctuated, but they have stayed pretty low. I think we had a low of two this week that people got, you know, pretty excited about. And then we saw 21 and, you know, we're still in the double digits for the most part, but very low double digits. A lot of regions are also experimenting with this idea of contact tracing apps. And that's something that BC is also looking at, but hasn't instituted yet at this point. But a local investigator that we spoke to says, we don't necessarily need one here. Denny Gagnon is the president of BCSI Investigations. He's been studying these apps. Uh, he's very much been studying kind of the privacy issues and what this app would need to do in order for it to be successful. And he said... You know what? What they're designed to do is to track people down. So do we need to do that here in BC? Well, here's what he had to say. Well, Danny, thank you so much for being with us to talk about this this morning. So you have an interest in contact tracing. What is it about this current situation that really interests you?
3: Well, it, I've been watching it for quite a bit, being a private investigator. And, and basically, contact tracing is global detective work. So it's created a huge interest, you know, to see, how this is going to develop. It doesn't, it's kind of unproven to this point, if it's going to work or not. And also, basically, contact tracing, the definition is the detection of anyone who has been in contact with someone who has basically tested positive.
1: Right. Okay. And so there's different ways of doing this, right? BC has been very aggressive in this approach.
3: BC has been aggressive, I wouldn't see as aggressive as um, other countries in some cases because I don't think we wanted to get that intrusive, but it's basically, you know, the more old-fashioned epidemiology by phone, contacting people that have been in touch with other people, and basically they're using phone technology, um, you know, to contact those individuals. It has been done through the, the medical system for a long time, but meanwhile, other countries have been much more aggressive and much more intrusive in using apps and and, uh, using Bluetooth technology.
1: So what do you think we should be doing? Uh,
3: At this point, I love what BC has done. I look at the numbers. I was looking at the numbers this morning. We look good. Um, There is a a huge... Being a private investigator, there's a huge concern from my part in regards to uh, privacy is a big thing. And where does that data, once collected, is going to go? Tracing is really labor intensive. You know, it's like basically a spider. Mm -hmm. You start with one person. and But it has to be based on a high level of testing. And BC has done some testing, but it has been the main focus, like the U.S., for example, or other countries like South Korea, uh, when they started testing 20,000 people a day.
1: Right. So you're saying, do we need to up that? Do we need to be more aggressive with the contact tracing, do you think?
3: You know, I struggle with that uh, uh, because I am semi, because I'm not sure. I don't, it it, it is unproven at this point, right? There are several countries, Israel, South Korea, Taiwan, China. I mean, they've been tracing with CCTV footage, uh, credit card transaction, uh, mobile phone data, credit card, you know, Bluetooth, Bluetooth tracing. I am not certain at this point, based on our number, I mean, we, I'm looking at the numbers today. We have 100, I'm not saying that it's great, but we have 149 debt in B.C., 2400 cases. Canada, 80,000 cases, 6,000 debt. I look at the U.S., 1.5 million cases, 93,000 debt. But South Korea, which could be inaccurate, I'm not sure, 11,000 cases, 264 dead. So it's about double what B.C.'s got. Um, you know, there is pros and cons on on that type of data. But when you call the, the restaurant now in, in BC, they ask you for your name and, and phone number so they can have a contact. That's no different when you make a reservation before. Right. That doesn't change. You know, so that's really similar. And I don't think we have to take the pendulum in putting CCTV cameras all over the streets. Like, you know, they have in many cities like London, um, you know, some of the European cities. and but And I'm not certain we need to change the model right now because it seems to be... Be working for us without being so intrusive that the pendulum goes completely with collecting all kind of data on each person people's medical history is a big concern
1: i know i was reading about hawaii as well where they have been very aggressive with tourists who arrive there forcing them to quarantine giving them hotel key cards that can only be opened up once and then after that you can't open your door so that way they know if people actually leave their hotel rooms that's pretty aggressive, don't you think?
3: I don't know if, Simi, you'd like to go to the beach or Hawaii and be monitored every time. I've been tra- I've traveled in China, and I've been monitored very, very closely. And, you know, this is a different approach, you know, where everywhere you go, you have to scan your passport and so on, and you're monitored constantly. Um, Canada hasn't reached that level yet. And you know if it's working and it's, I mean, is it working or it's not? I think it is. So why would we change the model? But again, like I said, this contact tracing is unproven technology. But my big concern is that if a private company, and I won't name any names, but, you know, some of the large players that are trying to find an app that's going to work, when they collect this data... But it's no different than Facebook and Instagram and all that. They're collecting data. You know, you, you, you search the Internet on Google and you search for a store and, it would, and then you get a contact. They want to sell you a pair of running shoes, right? So they are right. putting cookies in your computer and so on. But this is, we're talking health. So I have to balance now privacy versus health safety. And that's a pendulum I've been dealing with now for the past three months trying to figure out, should it go there or should it come back to the center?
1: That sounds like you're still kind of on the fence on it.
3: I am on the fence because I'm, well, I'm more on the fence thinking that we should keep the model the way Dr. Bonnie Henry has been doing it and, and Adrian Dix. You know, they've done, in my view, a fantastic job. And so if it's working, I don't think at this point we need to change the model if we're getting great results. That's kind of my view.
1: All right. Well, Danny, thank you so much for being with us.
3: You're very welcome. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day.
1: That is Denny Gagnon. He's the president of BCSI Investigations. He's pretty much an expert in tracking people down. That's what he does for a living. And he thinks, you know, we may not necessarily need these contact tracing apps. He thinks BC has done a great job so far with the way we're at it. But it really does look like that is the future. It looks like that is the way so many other jurisdictions are going. Are you comfortable doing that?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Find out what it is that Nikki Reitmeyer uh, has been up to. It turns out with all the interesting stories that she covers, she's found another one: birth control for pigeons. Now, if that sounds kind of familiar to you, you think, you know, I've heard this before. Well, they actually did a pilot project on this that started 18 months ago, and now that same pilot project has expanded into phase two. So, what is it all about? Well,
0: Nikki explains. <coughs> Like any major city, Vancouver has a lot of pigeons. A lot of pigeons. So to address the pigeon problem, about a year and a half ago, the BCSPCA and TransLink launched a pigeon birth control program. Yes, they started feeding pigeons birth control hidden in their food. The pilot project seemed to be successful, so now they're launching phase two more feeders with birdie birth control to further regulate our pigeon population. Dr. Sarah Dubois is the Chief Scientific Officer at the BCSPCA, and she explained why this program is so important.
4: As you know, if you're a transit rider, there can be a lot of pigeon poop around. And so this has been an issue for TransLink as well as many other organizations and businesses for a long time. And they're always looking for solutions to reduce the nuisance of the pigeons and the poop of the pigeons, but at the same time to find an, a long-term solution. And in TransLink's case, unfortunately, some of these pigeons have actually been hit on the rails and they've caused a fire. If you might remember, a couple of years ago, there was a whole day of a transit system went down on this TransLink SkyTrain because of a pigeon nest fire. So it has a lot of consequences and it it costs money to maintain these things.
0: Now, personally, I love pigeons, but I know many people who don't. However, no matter which team you're on, Dr. Dubois said this program is win-win for everybody.
4: For people who love pigeons, we love pigeons too. We're, We're not hiring them in any way. And we're just trying to naturally, you know, decrease the population over time and ensure that the ones that are here are, are going to be safe, and for those people who don't like pigeons, we're still achieving the goal of reducing the number of of animals out there overall. So it's a win-win for everyone, and I think it is the the best solution to move forward with a lot of pest control problems. You really have to be just creative, and there's thankfully this product came to Canada and was approved in 2018, and so we were fortunate that Translink was open to the idea of testing it out at their stations.
0: Okay, so how does pigeon birth control work? Well, the product that Dr. Dubois mentioned is called Ovocontrol, which is a Health Canada-approved birth control drug for birds. It goes into a big feeder along with cracked corn, which the pigeons eat each day. Regular consumption is important because, just like human birth control, you have to be taking it frequently and consistently in order for it to work. You can find these feeders at Skytrain stations, but at which stations remains a secret. And that's because, believe it or not, they've had their equipment stolen in the past. However, the project is in phase two now, which means it's been expanded to eight Skytrain stations in total.
4: That means there's four stations with the active substance over control and four stations that we're using as controls that just have cracked corn. So the feeders are set off every morning at 7 a.m., and the birds flock to eat it. And just like a daily pill, as long as they're consistently eating enough of the substance at the four active stations, we expect to see a decrease in pigeon populations over time.
0: Here are some other interesting facts about pigeons that you may not know. Humans and pigeons have a long-standing relationship. In fact, archeologists have found images of pigeons in ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, dating back to 3000 BCE. They're considered to be the oldest domesticated animal. Pigeons reproduce all year round. Each time they lay about one to two eggs that hatch after 18 days, and their babies stay in the nest for about four to six weeks. Also, pigeons are monogamous meaning that, generally speaking, they have just one partner for life. Another interesting fact, this pigeon birth control, it only works on birds. It doesn't work on other mammals, and it doesn't work on humans. If another bird species does eat a little bit of it, it probably wouldn't be too big of a deal, because in order for it to affect the hatchability of their eggs, they'd have to be eating it regularly, like the pigeons do. It's not going to affect
4: them, and pigeons tend to flock and eat in the same location every day. If you kind of build that routine, other birds don't. So this is a product that really has been targeted just for pigeons.
0: This project has been expanded into phase two, but just how successful it will be remains to be seen. It's going to take a little more time before we understand the effects that it's having on our pigeon populations. And while the concept of pigeon birth control does, frankly, seem a little bit strange, it's actually a pretty great idea. It's not harmful to the birds at all, and it safely and humanely reduces overall pigeon populations, leading to less mess on the SkyTrain platforms, less train disruptions, and better conditions for transit users. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer.
1: Trust Nikki, right, to come up with that and find out all about that. But it is pretty fascinating. Birth control for pigeons.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, this week was a really important week for us here in BC, right? We kicked off phase two of the provincial COVID-19 recovery plan. Things were opening up. I think people were feeling pretty positive. Lots of businesses kind of getting back into businesses. So... Are things returning to normal? Well, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade has some new polling that they have just made public this morning, taking a look at how business owners are feeling about things right now. The President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, Bridget Anderson, joins us now. Good morning, Bridget. Good morning, Simmy. It sounds like there's still a lot of apprehension out there for business owners.
5: Yeah, we are clearly not out of the woods yet. Uh, our recent survey shows that one in four businesses are feeling prepared to restart. And and some of the reasons for that is around operating cash. And that really has been the key pressure for businesses throughout the crisis beginning in March. Businesses are having to put inventory back uh, to, to the levels that they were hire staff back on. And then, of course, they have to pay for the measures that they need to have to reopen again and for them that's you know maybe ppe or plexiglass or cleaning additional cleaning so there's an incredible cost pressure on businesses right now as they're starting to reopen and they're telling us that uh, many of the businesses over half expect it's going to take more than 2 months to restart
1: really so not everybody is just kind of throwing open their doors this week
5: No, and the other piece that really is a key factor here is confidence. And so it's it's about the employers and the employees feeling confident to go back to work, absolutely, and to ensure the health and safety of of all. Um, But it's also the consumer's confidence that there's lots of people who aren't feeling quite ready to go back yet. So confidence plays a key part in this. For sure
1: right. and that's clear, right because you asked some of the businesses like what are their biggest challenges and the biggest looks like they're worried about attracting
5: customers. And there's good reason for that. You know, when we look at, especially you look at restaurants and they're a great example because they're only able to operate at about maybe 40 or 50% capacity. So for them, it's about having enough people to make it profitable to continue operating. But the same goes for the retail sector and lots of other businesses that just can't operate at the levels that they used to prior to COVID-19.
1: Interesting. Did you ask them as well about the different government programs that have been announced to help businesses? Like, are those programs helping?
5: There is no question those programs are incredibly helpful, especially when it comes to the wage subsidy. Those, that's really shoring up a lot of businesses and you know, it was good news to hear that the government is going to extend this. A third of the businesses expect to or have applied for the wage subsidy. So the take up on that is not as much as maybe uh, even the government expected, so interesting uh, to note there. But as well, you know, when we look at commercial rent assistance, and this has been a key, uh, I would say, pain point for businesses throughout this uh, this crisis. We've only seen that uh, maybe a quarter were about were unable to pay their rent in April in full, but only sixteen percent expect to qualify for any rent assistance. So there's clearly a lot more need there because, uh, you know, we're, we're hearing that rent is a, a big expense for business. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And they're really struggling there.
1: So we know, obviously, a lot of businesses had to lay off staff as well. Did, they, did the businesses also talk about the other ways in which they were impacted?
5: Well, I think firstly on the layoff, because there is a little bit of good news here, and uh, I certainly want to take a moment to highlight that. So we, this is the third time that we have uh, worked with the BC Business Council and the BC Chamber of Commerce to survey businesses across British Columbia. And in this survey that we did, um, we're finding that on average businesses have laid off about 12 employees. But that is less than what we saw in the first and the second survey. So it is clear that businesses are bringing employees back on and using that wage subsidy to do that uh, for sure.
1: That is a good sign then, right? So you would expect that perhaps we did hit the bottom already?
5: We did. And I guess that there's another piece of good news in there as well. We're seeing about a third of businesses, or almost a third, have been able to pivot to some sort of digital strategy. Uh, For many, uh, that's an e-commerce platform or for restaurants, they've been able to provide takeout. And so I I think it's important to recognize the innovation and the creativity by businesses trying to do whatever they can to keep things running uh, on some level.
1: Right. And you said this was the third time you have done this. So was there anything else in there that you found particularly interesting? Mm -hmm.
5: You know, one of the things that was that did stand out as well is that we asked businesses about the ease of application when it comes to um, working to try and get these government measures, and uh, we found that only about a third of those, or found about a third of the the businesses who had been applying for like the wage subsidy or rental assistance or those kinds of things are finding that uh, that the process is difficult, so that's a pretty high number because we are hearing that individuals are able to access funding very quickly. The money is showing up in bank accounts uh, with right. with very little difficulty, but businesses having some some difficulties and you know um we have spoken to government at uh, all levels about this that it is a complicated process, especially trying to factor in whether businesses are eligible for the wage subsidy. That does take time. Um, But given the take-up hasn't been um, as much as government would expect it, there could be some changes there.
1: Okay, so then overall, this is the third survey you've done. Are you going to continue to do this, continue to talk to businesses?
5: Absolutely. You know, I think it's very clear that we are at the beginning of the recovery stage. So we'll go back to businesses in a few weeks and find out how they are managing, uh, because this is going to be uh, a gradual process. Uh, I think, you know, both the Premier and Bonnie Henry have said that it's a dial and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's not a switch. And so we want to ensure that we're hearing from businesses how they're managing and what those pain points are so that we can advocate on their behalf.
1: All right, Bridget, thank you. Thanks very much, Simi. That's Bridget Anderson, president and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. So for the third time, they have surveyed their thousands of business members that they have there to ask them how the businesses are feeling about this COVID nineteen restart and recovery program. Seventy-five percent say they are concerned about attracting customers or revenue for their business. That is a huge number. Thirty-one percent are concerned that they don't have enough operating cash for expenses. Or, uh, to, or, or they're worried about meeting safety standards. 39% say they are, you know, the biggest challenge that they're facing is bringing staff back to get everything up and running again. What are some of the other challenges they identified that the governments haven't fully allowed to their business perhaps to open yet? They're not on the list or they're not yet fully prepared to meet the new safety guidelines that are out there. 30% said that as well. But clearly, you know, getting you in their stores, getting you to spend that money, that is the number one concern for businesses out there right now. 75% identified that as the number one challenge that they are facing right now. And you know what? That's to be expected. Not everybody switched to online spending either. Retail spending down 10% uh, last month. I think it just means that people are waiting to see what is going on.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
6: One of the significant outbreaks that uh, Minister Dix and uh, Dr. Henry spoke about uh, in the poultry sector was a result of people coming to work when they should have stayed home. Uh, That shone a light, a graphic uh, example of what we needed to address going forward, not just within this pandemic, but broadly.
1: Now that's Premier John Horgan talking about the issue of mandatory paid sick days. And as you also heard him say, that's an issue that has been front and center since this COVID-19 pandemic began. A lot of people cannot afford to stay home from work if they are sick. This isn't a new problem. So what is different about this time? Like, are we actually going to see some action on this? Joining us now to talk more about this is David Ferry, a labour economist and the co-chair of the BC Employment Standards Coalition. David, thank you for being here.
6: Oh, you're welcome, Sydney.
1: Does this sound like a different time to you that we are talking about this? Like, will something change this time?
6: Well, I hope so. Um, the issue of uh, paid sick leave has been uh, top of mind for Public health officials for quite some time and, and medical professionals have been calling for paid sick leave because because every year as you know in the winter we we go through uh, flu and flu and cold uh, ep- epidemics and um, and people will stay home and um, or go to work sick uh, typically because they can't afford to stay home without pay so I think uh, the the covid nineteen uh, pandemic has just brought this uh, issue to a head. Uh, because now, uh, now uh, the, the public health officials are 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 are, are calling on people not right. to go to work, and uh, our politicians, uh, Premier Horgan. Are saying it's uh, irresponsible uh, to go to work sick uh, no, no matter whether or not you 've got covid nineteen you should not be going to work sick, and so this has just brought it to a head
1: so then how would this work then because obviously if you have if some people have jobs they have benefits and they get their sick leave, but a lot of people are self employed or their job doesn't provide for that. How do we make that happen for those people
6: well the the way in which mo- most people uh, are most people who who are working are employees. There is a problem, of course, for people who are self-employed, and it's possible that they could get private insurance, but currently the Employment Standards Act uh, uh, provides the minimum conditions of employment for all workers, for all employees, or most employees in British Columbia. And what we're calling for is uh, is that the Employment Standards Act should have a paid sick leave provision. We have we have unpaid leave provisions for various things uh, such as uh, the illness for for children or domestic violence. But uh, but what we also need in the Employment Standards Act now is a, a requirement that the minimum conditions of employment for for everyone covered by the act is that they uh, receive a um uh, up to a maximum a number of sick days paid sick days per year so that when uh, you know when i w- when i wake up tomorrow morning uh, or when i wake up in the morning and i have scheduled to go to work i, I know that i'm i'm g- not going to lose money uh, by staying home currently people are in a horrible dilemma of having to decide whether or not to go to work and many people are uh, close to the line We've had stories of, 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 of uh, workers who, uh, who, who between forty and sixty percent of their earnings go to pay just for rent, and uh, it's just impossible for them to, to take a, a day off um, w- without pay.
1: Now, David, also very quickly, what about the idea though that okay, the money is one thing, but also the idea that maybe an employer doesn't it makes it difficult for an employee to take a sick day. Maybe employees feel like they can't, or they're going to lose their job.
6: Yeah, well, this is another thing. Uh, employees are, are, are um, as we've heard uh, in, in the poultry plants uh, cases and, yeah. and, the, and the fruit and vegetable processing plants cases, the, the employees not only are afraid because they, they won't uh, receive pay, but they're afraid they might lose their jobs. So uh, the provision of the Act uh, would be that you, your job is protected if you stay homesick, that your jo- it's job-protected leave as well as being paid leave.
1: Interesting. All right. Well, David, thank you very much for that. You're welcome. David Ferry is a labor economist and co chair of the BC Employment Standards Coalition. And they are hoping that this time things change That because of the COVID 19 pandemic, that we will finally see sick leave kind of enshrined in the BC employment standards. Meaning that even if you're self employed or whatever the case is, you do have self employed to be a little bit more difficult, obviously. But maybe your manager makes it difficult for you to take a sick day, that this would help in those lines. But I'm not sure. Sometimes, you know, we feel that and we still feel obligated to go to work. Do you think that would help?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We we know that earlier this week, Prime Minister Trudeau talked about keeping the border closed. This is something that B.C. has been lobbying hard for. It is now going to be closed until at least June the 21st. We haven't really seen a shutdown like that for this amount of time ever. But how are you feeling about it? Well, the Angus Reed Institute has been asking people that exact same question, and Executive Director Shachi Curl joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Shachi.
7: Good morning, Cindy. So,
1: how do people feel about this? Because I get, I feel kind of ambivalent about it. You know, I mean, there's no point in going down to the States right now, it just seems kind of risky. But how are other people feeling?
7: Well, that sense of, uh, call it a combination of caution and ambivalence, is there. Although one would think that, um, it really is a tension point or a push and pull between looking at ways to start to reopen our economy versus that sense of, well, I don't want to go down there, so I don't care. But, of course, trippers, uh, visitors from the United States are responsible for dumping more than $10 billion into uh, the country economically every summer. So um, that's always a consideration. But, indeed, in B.C., The the vast point of view is, look, keep it closed far longer than June 21st. Maybe start thinking about an opening after September.
1: September? Oh, that surprises me.
7: Um, There is a significant number who say keep it closed even longer. But no, for the most part, it's lock it down over the summer. Let's see what things are looking like then.
1: Really? Okay. Like what about between provinces then? That's international borders are one thing, but I've heard an awful lot of people and they've written me and even just kind of out and about talking to people who seem to be also very concerned about, you know, going back and forth in Alberta.
7: Yeah. Well, again, it's interesting because we are really looking to stay locked down and in our own sort of geographic bubble. So it's one thing to go have a drink on a patio. It's another thing to want to see a visitor from goodness knows where doing the same thing. Um, so again, you only have one in five. That's a, that's a minority of uh, people saying, look, uh, there should be no travel restrictions uh, between the provinces and that people should be able to move freely as they want to. Uh, in DC, across the rest of the country, Everyone else is on the side of uh, either we should have total total travel ban, no flights coming in, checkpoints at the border, lock it all the way down, or at least uh, see what we've been seeing actually out of our looters in British Columbia, which is strongly discouraging people from coming, although not necessarily uh, posting checkpoints at, uh, at at highways, but just saying hey. If you're from Alberta, if you're from other parts of the country, please don't come.
1: Isn't that interesting? Isn't, Chachi, have you noticed changes over the time of the pandemic? I know you've been polling all along.
7: Well, we have been polling all along. We haven't necessarily polled on this issue, but the, I can tell you, Cindy, we've been polling for the last two months. And the one consistent thing that I'm continuing to see is an erring on the side of caution, a sense um, among uh, British Columbians that, hey, we have come out of this certainly a lot better than other provinces, but we want to keep it that way. We want to be quite cautious about what a return, a return to normal looks like um, across the board.
1: Interesting then. So that caution hasn't really gone away, even though it seems like B.C. has, has done well.
7: That's right, and that pervades uh, every piece of what we're dealing with in life. So uh, it has it, it influences uh, feelings about reopening schools. It influences feelings about reopening restaurants and, and hair salons. And it has an impact on um, how quickly people themselves, if they have jobs to go back to, are looking forward to or wanting to go back to work. And in this case, it has an impact on how we feel about reopening borders and about interprovincial travel.
1: So interesting. Shachi, thank you for your time.
7: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
1: That is Shachi Curl, the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute. They polled people about how we feel on the decision to extend the closure of the Canada-U.S. border until at least June the 21st. What they found is that Canadians who live close to the Canada-U.S. border, 60% of them said they would definitely not day trip across the border this summer, even if it is reopened after June the 21st. That's a very big number. Uh, another 24% said that they probably wouldn't day trip across the border. So those two groups together, that makes up 84% of people who say they really don't think they're going to day trip across the border into the United States even after the bo- if they think the border is open after June the 21st. So that's huge. Only one in five, 19%, said the border should actually open. After June the 21st, when this current deal situation expires, most people, 42% was the number one choice, said September is when they're thinking the border should open. What do you think? How do you feel about that? Send me at cknw.com or call our buzzline line 604-331-2899.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We know this summer isn't really looking like how we thought it was going to look, right? Plans we may have had. Heck, I had a huge trip planned. And it all got cancelled, and I know that I'm in the same boat as so many other people. However, we also know BC is a beautiful place, right? It's a great destination for people all over the world, so it's time for us to explore our backyard perhaps a little bit more. That is one of the things that's going to be perhaps an advantage. We really have to help out all those tourist destinations right here in our own province this summer. So joining us now to talk more about that is Maya Lang, Vice President of Global Marketing at Destination BC. Maya, thanks for being here. here.
8: Thank you for having me.
1: It's a little bit of a different, I guess, um, feature focus for you guys this summer. Destination BC, but we're already here.
2: (laughs)
8: <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, typically, um, this time of year, you know, we would be starting to see many of our international travelers, our American travelers coming to British Columbia, but, uh, and of course, British Columbians taking starting to take trips or planning trips for the summer. But of course, this year, as you said, is is a little bit different. So our focus will be on uh, getting British Columbians to explore more of their the beautiful place that we get to call home.
1: Right. So we, are we talking about all the different destinations? Because I was thinking, well, there must be some great spa resorts in B.C., maybe wineries, places that normally those international tourists would be going.
8: Yes, you're right. And I think I think we British Columbians often don't even know our own province very well. I think we typically go to the same places every year. We, you know, we'll, we'll go to the same place with our friends to go camping or visit family. Um, and yet we have this massive province um, that is just waiting for us to explore. So whether it's heading up to the north to you know Prince George or even further up to uh, the the Alaska Highway, um, or you know heading east and heading into the Kootenays and the Rockies um, and checking out them you know mountain scenery and and mountain um, mountain town you know experience, there really is so much to offer in British Columbia. The, the key difference this year will be the what we're calling no before you go. And so our website, as of June 1, our website will be updated to feature um, information about what communities are open, supporting, um, you know, businesses that are are also open. We recognize that um, there's also going to be new uh, safety and, and health measures being put into place. So sharing a lot of that information on our HelloBC.com website will, will be a, a big focus for us.
1: Will there be incentives as well for BC residents to travel to different parts? Of the province, perhaps later in the summer,
8: we'll be we'll be sharing a lot of information about about where to go in BC um, in terms of you know financial or financial incentives. I, I think you know businesses have been hurting so so much. I think really our our big focus is uh, to help those return to revenue and and uh, and so it's up to the businesses to decide whether they'll be providing you know uh, you know whether it's uh, discounts or otherwise. But really for us, it's going to be to get. To get um, British Columbians traveling around uh, British Columbia as, as much as possible, where they're where they're welcomed. Um, we do recognize that some communities are not open to to outsiders at this at this time because of health concerns. But we'll be focusing on getting British Columbians to travel around BC and
5: discover the amazing places we have to offer.
1: Well, I am in. You can count me in as one of the people who will be doing this this summer. Excellent. It's a big it's a big role to fill though. Two big shoes to fill though, right? Because I mean, international tourism is has a huge impact. Here on us in BC.
8: It does. And in fact, um, although, if you think about it, uh, about Sixty percent of all visits to British Columbia are actually generated by the domestic market. Um, so it really is we British Columbians are the ones that travel our province the most. And in fact, of the twenty-three million overnight trips or so, or so that British Columbia, that uh, people take in BC, um, you know the vast majority of those. So I think it's about sixteen million of those are actually by British Columbians and themselves and Albertans. So um, so we we really do take the bulk of of those trips. And so this year, you know, there's just going to be more that's going to be available. So, some of these amazing um, experiences that people travel all around the world. To come, you know, to come to British Columbia to experience are are you know going to be available, um, you know, to British Columbians this year. So so that's uh, our role is to help bring those to light right. and to and to share those with, with British Columbia. Um, of course we have to validate, make sure that the, the businesses are open and are able to receive visitors. Um, and so there's a tremendous effort underway to to sort through that and to to support those businesses to, to in, in with reopening.
1: Right, and do you think there will be more marketing done, for instance, Maya, as well, to let people know, uh, look at, you've probably never been here. Look at this in BC. Yes,
8: yes, yes. (laughs) We're just working... Passionately on all of that material right now. Um, there'll be some really exciting things that are going to be launching June one. It's always a delicate balance between we have to adhere to the provincial health officer, um, and so we're going to be taking our cues from her to understand, you know, how how much can we sort of turn up the dial to be sharing where British Columbians can go. Um, but we are we are going to be launching a campaign as of June one to share all of that information all on our website hellobc.com. Um, right now, already has a ton of information about uh, about where to go in BC and trip ideas and so on. So there'll be a lot more, um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a lot more of that information. Also, as I said, featuring that know before you go aspect too, so helping people understand, um, you know, what is open, you know, what communities are are able to host outsiders, and then also tips for responsible travel. So recognizing, you know, things like. You know perhaps you know do your do your shopping if you're going to to experience a certain place, do your shopping in your hometown first so that you're not clearing out the the shelves of a local community of a local community supermarket so so um so there'll be a lot of that information as I said launching on June one
1: okay, so all that that we have to look forward to there uh, this is it's going to be really unique, but I guess there's also a lot of lessons to be learned from this here too, isn't there?
8: yeah, I think um I think you know cautiously. Cautiously optimistic about yeah. how we open up the the province. Um, we're cautious optimism. I think we're all so keen to get back out and exploring our province. I know I've got mm-hmm. a trip planned uh, later this summer um, with my young family, and um, and you know we're heading we're heading up north. So you know there's uh, there's so many things to do, and we're just going to have to just also just take it carefully. Um, also, you know we have to be careful of, of our own health um, and taking measures to make sure that we're. Being responsible in uh, in not spreading spreading the virus uh, around the province, so so there'll be a it's a fine balance, but I'm cautiously optimistic that we can we British Columbians can can do this can do this responsibly.
1: I think we can too. I'll be on the website, Maya. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Maya Lang, Vice President of Global Marketing at Destination BC, Uh, launching June 1st. There's going to really be a huge emphasis on essentially vacationing in our own backyard this summer. Hey, we all had trips planned, right? I mean, you know, from listening to the radio, I I was supposed to go to Kenya. Many of you out there were coming with me. In fact, it was going to be an amazing trip. Well, guess what? We're going to try again next year. See if we can do it one year from now. This year, well, yeah, let's see if we can find some places in BC that we didn't know were out there that we can go and explore in our own backyard. Let me know what your plans are within the province. Simi at cknw.com.